Well, in his book, He Chose the Nails, Max Lucado offers this interesting story. He says, meet Edwin Thomas, a master of the stage. During the latter half of the 1800s, this small man with a huge voice had few rivals. Debuting in Richard III at the age of 15, he quickly established himself as premier Shakespearean actor. In New York, he performed Hamlet for 100 consecutive nights. That's a lot of nights. In London, he won the approval of the tough British critics. And when it came to tragedy on the stage, Edwin Thomas was in a select group. When it came to tragedy in life, the same could be said as well. Edwin had two brothers, John and Junius. Both were actors, although neither rose to his stature. But in 1863, the three siblings united their talents to perform Julius Caesar. The fact that Edwin's brother John took the role of Brutus was an eerie harbinger of what awaited the brothers and the nation two years hence. For this John who played the assassin in Julius Caesar is the same John who took the role of assassin in Ford's theater. On a crisp April night in 1865, he stole quietly into the rear of the box in the Washington theater and fired a bullet at the head of Abraham Lincoln. Yes, the last name of the brothers was Booth. Edwin Thomas Booth and John Wilkes Booth. Edwin was never the same after that night. Shame from his brother's crime drove him into retirement. He might never have returned to the stage had it not been for a twist of fate at a New Jersey train station. Edwin was awaiting his coach when a well-dressed young man, pressed by the crowd, lost his footing and fell between the platform and the moving train. Without hesitation, Edwin locked a leg around a railing, grabbed the man, and pulled him to safety. After the sighs of relief, the young man recognized the famous Edwin Booth. Edwin, however, didn't recognize the young man that he'd rescued. That knowledge came weeks later in a letter a letter he carried in his pocket to his grave. A letter from General Adams Bureau, the chief secretary to General Ulysses S. Grant. A letter thanking Edwin Booth for saving the life of the child of an American hero, Abraham Lincoln. How ironic that while one brother killed the president, the other brother saved the president's son. The boy, Edwin Booth, yanked to safety, Robert Todd Lincoln. Edwin and James Booth, same father, mother, profession, and passion. Yet one chooses life and the other death. How could it happen? I don't know, Max says, but it does. Though this story is dramatic, it's not unique Abel and Cain, both sons of Adam. Abel chooses God, Cain chooses murder. Abraham and Lot, both pilgrims in Canaan. Abraham chooses God, Lot chooses Sodom. David and Saul, both kings of Israel. David chooses God, Saul chooses power. And God lets him. God gives us eternal choices, doesn't he? 
And these choices have eternal consequences. Understanding that is likely the greatest motivation there is to becoming a contagious Christian. The souls of men and women hang in the balance. Standing at the edge of eternity are many of our friends and relatives. How important do you think it should be to each one of us to make that bridge to life available to them? Last time we were together, we talked about how we can personally explain the bridge to life in a practical and easy to understand way. Hopefully you are all equipped now to present it when the next opportunity arises. But what happens next? Suppose the person you're speaking with decides they want to cross that line of faith. They want to make the decision to follow Christ. And they want you to help. What part do you play in that? What do you say to them? Where do you go from there? If, as I said, the last session was the most important one in this series, then surely what we're going to address today is possibly the most exciting one in the series. Because crossing the line of faith is really the climax of contagiousness and becoming a contagious Christian. There's nothing more exhilarating than being involved in helping someone cross over the line from non-belief to faith, is there? Nothing more exciting than that. Nothing. Whenever God has allowed me to be a part of that step, I have come away more energized by the Spirit of God and so full of His joy that I'm ready to jump out of my skin. Anybody else experience that? At the same time, it's an extremely humbling experience, isn't it? Almost sobering to realize the incredible tightrope that you have just watched someone walk between life and death. The fact that every single step on that precarious journey is critical and one misstep could alter the course of a person's destiny causes us to wake up to the reality of how crucial it is to be spiritually prepared. Let's pray together that God would prepare us right now, shall we? Let's pray. Oh, Lord and Heavenly Father, we are humbled. And who are we that we, you should choose us to be part of your eternal plan and leading souls into your kingdom? Who are we, Lord? We are weak and nervous and reticent to step out onto that tightrope of faith, especially when another person's life is on the line. Yet in almost every page of Scripture, we come face to face with the truth that you want us involved. Father, make us ready. Keep us humble. Drive us deeper in love with you, so deep that nothing on the face of the earth could restrain us from helping others to find you. Lord, when we are fearful, make us faithful. When we're faithful, make us fruitful. And when we're fruitful... Keep us humble. For it is only by your amazing grace that we ourselves have been invited to serve you. And that for your glory alone. Through the strength of your spirit and by faith in your son Jesus, in whose sovereign name I pray. Amen. So I want to transport you now to two separate events contained in scripture to set the mood for this message, so to speak. The first one is in Acts chapter 8. I'll begin in verse 25. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, Get up, 
go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate to this generation, to his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Great passage of scripture. The second one I want to take you to is in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. Acts 16, verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, I've used these two scenes in order to help us see more clearly some principles for helping people cross the line of faith. They're not complicated, but they're very, very practical. I'm sure everybody here has had the experience of watching some incredible feat performed on television and heard this warning. Caution, please don't try this at home. The people you see in these segments were trained professionals. You've seen that, right? Well, in light of our current series, I want to pass on a very different piece of advice to you that I once heard. 
Do try this at home, at work, and at a restaurant, and on a park bench. Don't wait around for the trained professionals because they may never show up. Besides, your friends will trust you more than the professionals anyway. All of us should want to become more effective at helping our friends and acquaintances move from the point of decision for Christ across the line of faith. But there may be some of you who just don't know how or at what point you should make that invitation. Today, I want to give you just some, a few simple areas to consider in that endeavor. Very, very practical things. So if you want to take some notes, great. You probably think you already know this stuff. My question to you then, if you already know this stuff, is are you practicing this stuff? Don't dismiss it out of hand unless you're doing it so well that you could stand here and teach it to somebody because we all should be able to, shouldn't we? So number one, first thing I want you to know is don't avoid approaching the line. Don't avoid approaching the line. The first step in moving people to a decision is quite simply to try to figure out where they are in the process, in the journey. After you've prayed for them, built a level of trust, and presented the gospel to them in a clear fashion, possibly using the bridge illustration or some other thing that we went over last time or whatever it is that you use, it then becomes a matter of approaching that critical line with them. And here are a couple of suggestions that you might want to take under consideration. Number one, evaluate their interests. Evaluate their interest. In Acts chapter 8 that we just saw, in verses 26 to 30, Philip was prompted by the Holy Spirit to approach the Ethiopian eunuch, and he did it. He didn't argue with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit prompted him, and he did it, right? He could tell that this man was interested in spiritual things and specifically in the scriptures because he heard him reading them. The eunuch actually invited Philip into the chariot in verse 31. You can read that. So here's the number one thing. Pay attention to the prompting of the spirit. You can tell whether or not a person is interested in what you've presented to them or not. If you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, the Holy, if the Holy Spirit has led you to the point of sharing the gospel with someone, he's usually prepared their hearts. Amen? Trust his leadership. So, evaluate their interests. Number two, analyze their understanding. Try to figure out what they understand. Make sure that the people that you are speaking with are clear on the message so you can ask them a few clarifying questions like, does this make sense to you? Or is there any part of this that you don't understand? They're going to tell you. It's crucial that people understand the facts of the gospel in order to make a clear decision for the gospel, right? Too many times Christians pull a bait and switch thing. We, they do, we do this all the time. They play up the positive aspects of the good news, but they forget conveniently to tell people about their need of repentance from sin. And they present the gospel as this exciting option, but forget to explain the consequences of what it means to reject the gospel. And make sure they understand that there is salvation and no one else but Jesus Christ. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Philip preached 
what to him? Verse 35, what does it say? He preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to the eunuch, not a variety of different ways, not a variety of different things. He preached Jesus to him. So, evaluate their interest, analyze their understanding, assess their readiness. That's the next thing. Assess their readiness. In fact, is we can never know for sure if a person is ready to receive Christ. Only the Holy Spirit knows that for sure. But as Christians, the Holy Spirit resides in us. Amen? So he will give us a pretty good sense of whether we should prompt them to make a decision or not, if we're listening to the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important to pray throughout the course of your interaction with people. Assessing a person's readiness can be as simple as asking questions and listening carefully to their answers. Simple question. Have you come to the point of trusting Christ or are you still in the process of thinking it through? Very basic question. How many times have you asked somebody that? You know, that tells us a lot about where a person may be. The problem with most of us is that we shy away from asking those kinds of probing questions, don't we? It's a risk to ask, where are you right now in your thinking process about Jesus Christ? We assume they're going to snap back at us and say, it's none of your business, just lay off, right? And they might. That's a very real possibility. But more often than not, people will be open and honest and respectful to you if you have been open and honest and respectful to them. If they say they're thinking about it, try to find out if there's any part of the gospel that's holding them back. I remember taught a Bible study early, early on in my Christian life. I was still working for the state. And uh, one of the ladies that worked for me, she wanted to have a Bible study at her house. So invited uh, me and a few other guys that were Christians, people that were Christians, over to the house to start a Bible study. And her husband didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity. But he didn't leave the house. So he had this Bible study in the living room, but he's fooling around in the kitchen doing all kinds of things. But all the time that we're having that Bible study, he's listening. Three, four weeks into this Bible study, the Holy Spirit prompts me. He says, Russ, I want you to... I want you to pigeonhole him tonight get him on the couch and ask him straight out point blank where he is in his thinking about Jesus Christ so I got there and he's doing his thing in the kitchen so I had to obey so I asked him to come and join us in the living room he sat on the couch he listened to the Bible study everybody left I stayed behind and I pointedly asked him the question well he ended up receiving Christ that night you see, you never know what a person is going through in their minds while they're listening. You may be talking to somebody else about Jesus, but there's somebody in the background over here listening to every word you say. So take the risk. Ask the question, is there any good reason why you wouldn't want to ask God for his forgiveness and leadership in your life right now? They'll answer you. They'll either blow you off or they'll honestly answer you. Friends, I can't stress enough to remember that this is not only an intellectual step, but this is an emotional and a spiritual battle. 
The enemy does not want us to press this decision and will do everything to thwart it from getting kids to cry just at the right moment or wrong moment. Ever have that happen before? To bringing discouragement upon you just at the point of decision? People will often feel like something is telling them to put off the decision until later. Encourage them to realize that if they know now that it's the right thing to do, it is very, very dangerous to put it off. I've watched people come right to the edge of truth, right to the edge of faith. They're standing at the precipice, tears streaming down their face. They admit that they truly need Christ and they understand that they must decide for him right then and there if their future is to be secure, but they, for some reason, hesitated and convinced themselves to hold back. And then this tiny callus begins to form around their heart over that sensitive part of their heart. God can and sometimes does break through that again, but I've seen too many people never get to that point again, and it tears me up inside when that happens. I can think of one example, a very clear example, years ago that happened. To this day, I don't know where they are spiritually. You know, the greatest deception that Satan has ever attempted to use to thwart the salvation of souls is not that there is no heaven. It's not that there is no hell. It's that there is no hurry. I could put it off till later. But you don't know how much later you have. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, For God says, at just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Let me add one more important item here. Readiness not only involves a sense of urgency on the other person's part, but coupled with that is a sense of expectancy on our part. What do I mean by that? We need to ask God to give us an attitude of expectancy. Holy Spirit-inspired expectancy is what enables us to move on to the next step with people, writes one man. We can't allow the devil to tempt us to stop short of offering people the opportunity to commit their lives to Christ. That's what God is in the business of bringing people to. And you and I are the means that he uses to do it. Otherwise, why would he have given us the Great Commission if that weren't the case? Sometimes, however, people will admit that they're not ready. And if a person is not open to receiving Christ, it may be that we have to let the Holy Spirit work on them over time in their heart. There's nothing worse than trying to force people to do something that they're not ready to do. Because then they're just mouthing the words and it means nothing. You don't want to be involved in that. You know, if a person is not open to receiving Christ, that's okay. Jesus never got a decision out of Nicodemus when he talked to him in John chapter 3, by the way. We don't re read it. He let the rich young ruler walk away, remember? Even though Mark's gospel said, quote, Jesus felt a love for him, unquote. See, we cannot force people to make a decision they're not willing to make. You can, however, offer to pray for them and be available to them whenever they have a question or need to talk. And sometimes, you know, years later, in the midst of some crisis, they may return to you 
because they know that you can help them and you spent time with them. However, when people are ready, we must be ready as well, which brings us to the next stage of the process. Don't fear crossing the line. Don't fear crossing the line. After you've introduced someone to Jesus Christ, assess their readiness to make a decision, and they've responded positively to your invitation to become his committed follower, what's the next step? Well, here's a few things. Number one, assist them in prayer. This is where a lot of people get really nervous. This, this the first thing you need to do here is relax. Relax. You need to remember that God has been orchestrating every single event that has occurred up till now. He's not about to quit and leave you on your own to mess it all up, right? He's going to bring it to a wonderful conclusion if you let him. As a side note here, I must add that the examples in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 16 that we just read as well as any other examples in the scriptures, are curiously devoid. Listen to what I'm saying now. They are curiously devoid of anyone ever leading another person in prayer to receive Christ. Do you know that that's not in the Bible? It's just not there. In almost every scriptural case, we find that a person who comes to faith in Christ simply believes. The Bible says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, right? In John 1.12. So how do we receive? By faith, belief. So begs the question, why do we lead people in prayer? Well, I think the precedent is set by the stated principles of Scripture rather than specific examples in Scripture. Jesus himself said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, he won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask of him? You know, the thief on the cross is probably the closest example that we have of a salvation prayer. When coming to the end of himself, he pleaded, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a prayer. And Jesus replied, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, which exemplifies the truth that Romans 10, 13 says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Moreover, belief in Christ is expressed through belief in the heart as well as the confession of the mouth, according to Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10. And prayer is one tangible way to make that confession of faith in the presence of another person. Although it is not commanded in Scripture to lead another person in the prayer of faith, it is perfectly acceptable and, in fact, it's very appropriate and it's very moving. 
That being said, how should we assist people in prayer? Well, here's suggestion number one. Forget the formulas. Just forget the formulas. There's no perfect prayer, so don't sweat it. Don't worry if you can't remember the words of Billy Graham used. Don't get nervous because you didn't write down the prayer on the back page of the bulletin last week. An attitude of heartfelt repentance and grief over sin is what's important. And a tiny bit of help from you to make their request isn't going to hurt them. There are no magic words. Just speak from your heart and have them speak from theirs. Okay? Again, think about the thief on the cross. His request was made to Jesus in less than 10 words. 10 words. I read the account of a man once who was stuck in the middle of New York City traffic. He was in a traffic jam and the Holy Spirit was, had been working on his heart. Finally, in sheer exasperation, this is what he blurted out to God. Quote, all right, here I am, guts, feathers and all, take me, unquote. And the man's life was transformed by Christ, by that prayer. So forget the formulas. Secondly, pray together. Help the person by prompting them. They may never have prayed a prayer before in their entire life. Explain that prayer is nothing more than an intimate conversation with God. There's no bad prayer if it's done with a sincere and God-seeking attitude. Amen? You know, prayer, you know what prayer is like? I've often said this in the past. Prayer is like your toddler's artwork and colorings that you stick on your refrigerator. It's outside the lines. It's coming from all different angles and the colors don't match. And it's far from perfect, but in your eyes, it's worth a place of honor in your sight and everybody else's. That's, I believe, how our Father looks at a new believer's prayer. And ours, for that matter. The scripture says we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, right? When the motivation is love and the desire is to please our Heavenly Father and do His will, there can be no bad prayer. Forget the formulas. Pray together. Pray out loud. There's something about confessing before another person, a heart of repentance and confession of Christ. It makes us accountable to each other. It drives a stake in the earth, in the ground, right there that says, I've testified before you that I'm serious about this decision. And then for you, if you want to, you can even lead the prayer. Even though there's no such thing as a bad prayer when it's done in love, people sometimes feel better with a little bit of guidance. Prompting someone to pray in their own words is better than having them repeat yours, however. But just prompt them in a few areas. Conversationally. You know, admit their need. They need to admit their need. Express their belief. Ask for forgiveness and help in turning from their sin. Invite Christ to be the Savior and Lord of their life and give thanks for his promise of life in heaven. Those basic suggestions. And then let them pray. Let them pray. You might have to sit there for a while before they actually do it. But let the Holy Spirit lead that. And then you close in prayer. Thank God for what just transpired. 
Praise God for the miracle of new life in Christ and pray for their protection and growth in the exciting days that lie ahead for them. So the question comes up, what if someone doesn't want to pray with you? What then? Well, simply explain the points that they should cover and encourage them to do it as soon as possible and then to call you and let you know so that you can rejoice with them. And bottom line, be there for that person. Be there for them. God has placed you in the unique and privileged position of helping someone make a choice that will forever alter their destiny. Take it seriously. Helping a friend cross the line of faith is one of the most solemn, exciting, and joyous experiences you will ever have in your life. So prepare yourself. It can be addictive. Be ready to assist them in prayer. And then secondly, be quick to affirm their commitment. Affirm their commitment. Celebrate it. Talk about it. You know what I do? I like to take them to Luke chapter 15 and verse 10. Luke chapter 15 and verse 10. You know what that says, right? In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I love to take them there and say the whole, all of heaven and all the angels are rejoicing right now. They're throwing a party because of the prayer you just said. And let them know that. They're in the eternal spotlight. And all of heaven is up on their feet with thunderous applause and praise to God for adding another soul to the family. Do you believe that that happens when a person receives Christ? I hope you do because that's the truth. It's also important to remind them that they just made the most important decision of their entire life. Some people aren't real emotional. Others just completely fall apart. You might have to comfort them a little bit, you know, but that's okay. The important thing is that they meant what they said, and sometimes the feelings come later with some people. Give them assurance. That's another thing. Give them assurance of their salvation. Let them know that their salvation is a fact, not just a feeling. If they were sincere in their prayer, their salvation is secure. Use the scripture to solidify that security, right? Romans 10, 13. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, not might be saved, will be saved. 1 John chapter 5 is another great place to take them. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12 He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then there's always Romans chapter 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ, right? Read that passage to them. Encourage them. And then John's gospel. John chapter 5, verse 24. Love this verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. That's a fact. That's a Bible fact. And then John chapter 10, one of my favorites, John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one shall snatch them out of 
my hand. That's great stuff. It's important to give them assurance because the enemy's not going to. He's going to try to suck that assurance right out of them, and so is the rest of the world. Talk about bullying. We have a very real enemy that tries to bully us into believing that we're not really Christians. So it's important to use the scripture to give them assurance and then tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Paint a realistic picture to them. Explain to them that there will be highs and lows in their experience with Christ. It's not just all a cakewalk from this point forward. Although our real citizenship is in heaven, we still have to deal with life on earth, don't we? And it's, there's a whole bunch of junk that we have to deal with here. Encourage them to stay intimate with Jesus and in close communication with him through the good times and the bad times, in sickness and in health. Through all of life's experiences to which they are not immune just because they become a Christian. Wow. I bet you didn't think that you would be responsible for all that much, did you? You thought becoming a contagious Christian simply meant telling people about Jesus. But hey, the command to make disciples is a full-service task, not a self-service hit-and-run, right? And bringing people to the point of conversion involves some responsible steps. It means carefully approaching the line with them, bringing them to the point of decision and challenging them to make the good choice of crossing the line. But finally, after they've made that move, we don't leave them hanging there. Becoming a contagious Christian also requires that we become instrumental as they begin. So don't neglect walking the line with them. Take the next step with them. Help them to mature. Don't abandon the baby. Here are some areas that are most important. First, encourage them to be baptized. Encourage them to be baptized. Now, this, in my opinion, is probably one of the greatest weaknesses within the body of Christ in the contemporary church. The early Christians were almost always immediately baptized after they crossed the line. No baptism classes, no waiting period, no shame. In fact, conversion and baptism of believers happened in such close succession that many people have gotten the idea that baptism is what saves a person. However, the order in Scripture is always repentance, belief, and then baptism. Baptism is the outward symbol and profession of what has already happened inside a person's heart. Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. Notice what happened here. Therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Encourage every new believer to take the next step 
and be baptized. And you know what? You should accompany them if it's at all possible. If you've attended any of our baptisms, you'll notice uh, that we often have the people who have helped the new believer across the line of faith accompany them in the water and actually help baptize them. It's a beautiful expression of oneness in Christ, isn't it? Again, we ought to celebrate and rejoice in people's commitment to Christ. So make it a big deal, because it is a big deal. And in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 16, you see that baptism happening right away. Secondly, equip them to learn. Equip them to learn. Underscore the importance of daily quiet time in Bible and prayer. Daily quiet time in the Bible and prayer. Prayer is spiritual oxygen to the soul. And the Bible is our food and drink. Our sustenance, God's revelation to us. He speaks to us through his word. So give them a Bible, an accurate translation that they can understand and suggest some books that they might begin to read. Teach people the basic outlines of how to pray. Use the ACTS thing, you know what I mean? The acrostic, A-C-T-S. A stands for adoration. C for confession. T for thanksgiving. S for supplication, for requests being made known to God. Teach them the basics of that stuff. Do you know them yourself? And get them involved in the healthy, strong church that adheres to the teaching of Scripture. Get them involved with other believers in a small group. Encourage them to develop Christian friendships. Help them by inviting them to your church and your small group Bible study and by introducing them to other Christians. Next, expect them to grow. Expect them to grow. You know why? Because healthy things grow. Expect their lives to change from the inside out and walk with them as much as you possibly can. Comment on the changes you see in them and exhort them to deeper relationship with Christ. You see? And then exhort them to multiply. New believers are in the best position imaginable to tell others about Christ because most of their acquaintances are likely non-believers. Teach them how to share their faith, just like we've been going through in this last few sessions. Use the concept we've studied in this series, and by all means, mentor them and keep developing friendships with non-believers. Don't let them get sucked into the holy huddle syndrome. That may motivate you to stay out of it yourself. So let's wrap it up. Max Lucado points out some amazing things in his book, He Chose the Nails. As I began this sermon, I would like to end it. I want to leave you with some food for thought that he wrote. He says, there are times when God sends thunder to stir us. There are times when God sends blessings to lure us. But then there are times when God sends nothing but silence as he honors us with the freedom to choose where we spend eternity. What an honor it is. In so many areas of life, we have no choice. Think about it. You didn't choose your gender. You didn't choose your siblings. You didn't choose your race. You didn't choose your place of birth. Sometimes our lack of choices angers us. It's not fair, we say. It's not fair that I was born in poverty or that I sing so poorly or that I run so slowly. It would have been nice if God had let us order life the way we order a meal, wouldn't it? 
I'll take good health and a high IQ, please. I'll pass on the music skills, but give me a fast metabolism, <laughs> right? <laughs> Would have been nice. I actually have a fast metabolism, so. But for some people, it doesn't happen. And when it came to your life on earth, you weren't given a choice or a vote. But when it comes to life after death, somehow, in this mystery of God's sovereignty and our free choice, we are given that choice. Seems like a good deal, wouldn't you agree? Have we been given any greater privilege than that of choice? Not only does this privilege offset any injustice, the gift of free will can offset any mistakes. You've made some bad choices in life. So have I. You've chosen the wrong friends at times, maybe the wrong career, even the wrong spouse. You look back over your life and you say, quote, if only, if only I could make up for those bad choices. Well, you can. One good choice for eternity offsets a thousand bad ones on earth. And the choice is yours. How can two brothers be born of the same mother, grow up in the same home, and one choose life and the other choose death? I don't know, but they do. How could two men see the same Jesus and one choose to mock him and the other choose to pray to him? I don't know, but they did. And when one prayed, Jesus loved him enough to save him. And when the other mocked, Jesus loved him enough to let him. He allowed him the choice. And he does the same thing for you and me and the people that you witness to. So my friends, if crossing the line of faith is the climax of our contagiousness, then you and I must be prepared to help people make that choice if God's soul allows us to. Amen? Are you ready? Are you willing? Are you able? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for blessing us with such an amazing privilege and honor to be able to be part of your salvation scheme and plan. That by your Holy Spirit, you use us as tools, Lord God, to reveal your son Jesus to people, to pray with people, to encourage them to commit their lives to you, to help them to make the best choice possible. Lord, help us to be equipped and ready and willing and able to do it when you give us the opportunity to do it. We thank you, our Father, for who you are. We ask that all glory and praise and honor would be made yours. In Jesus' name.